0: Thank you for the welcome. Um, I think I, I've been having second thoughts. Um, you see, I heard Pastor—I uh, almost called you Pastor. You almost became a pastor. Uh, I heard—I heard Rick um, give give the uh, give the introduction earlier, and he said that we are going to be in the potluck. That's what I heard him say. <laughs> And what makes me a little suspicious is when we were praying, uh, before we were praying actually backstage with Pastor RJ, he said that we were going to be having Tim for lunch. (laughs) And and so Luke, I'm reconsidering our discussion that we had earlier about where we are going to sit in in the auditorium this morning. I said I'd like to sit far away from the main entrance. I, Luke, I see that there is an emergency exit over there that we may need to we may need to use. Uh, it is good to be with you. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, I always enjoy coming to Crestwick. You've always been very hospitable and uh, very welcoming, and uh, supportive through over 20 years of missionary service. Uh, first in Trinidad and Tobago, where I served with my wife Jane, and uh, for. Uh, A number of years involved in theological education, then for a short while in the ABWE Canada office, and now for the last 10 years with Horizon Education Network, and uh, all the while under the auspices of ABWE uh, Canada. And so thank you you for your partnership, thank you for your prayers, uh, thank you for walking with us, not for one mile, as was uh, prayed, but for... We'll call it 20 miles, more than 20 miles, uh, each mile being a year. And so it is, it is good to be with you. I'd like to give you a brief update on uh, the work of Horizon uh, before I open God's Word. And then you will have an opportunity uh, to ask some questions, to do a little, should I say, grilling um, at the potluck um, if you want to ask some questions uh, about anything in particular that I haven't covered um, I do have, as uh, Rick mentioned, some of my children uh, with me. I won't speak a lot about them. I'll let them speak for themselves. So if you have questions for them, uh, you, can, uh, you can ask them questions as well. Uh, so we'll begin with a snapshot of 2022. Uh, we titled uh, this kind of overview of Horizon's ministry, in the last year as back on the road, and we do that because for a couple of years we had been grounded, in fact, maybe we should call it back in the air because that's usually how we travel, Uh, but we've been getting out again to a theological education conference, as was mentioned in 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 the introduction, and then also to visit our partners in various parts of the world. I'll just briefly highlight Horizon's mission for you. Um, that, uh, what kind of our goal is in operating as an organization, and that is that we partner with national theological education organizations to equip ministry leaders through online learning and digital resource development in their own language and culture for global service. There's a lot to unpack in that, but basically we come alongside Bible colleges and seminaries and help them do what they do better. Um, and it's a great privilege to work with over 40 schools and training organizations around the world. Uh, I'm going to tell you a few numbers in just a minute, but before I do that, I'd like to highlight one quote that we received recently from one of our partners in Venezuela. Uh, if you follow the news at all, uh, well, it hasn't been in the news so much lately, Venezuela is a kind of a repressive state and one in which there's not a lot of freedom Uh, but we have a partner. In fact, I think we have two partners that work in Venezuela, and one of them recently sent us this. Praise for the different countries and cultures that are represented in our online classes. This has greatly enriched the intercultural sharing of perspectives and insights. Uh, It was really amazing to think through that here is a a school, in a culture, in a country that doesn't have a lot of freedom, and yet they are, through their online courses, reaching out to students in other parts of the world, and uh, training them for ministry in their particular context. And they see great value in the ability to cross borders without actually having to move physically and to learn from one another, and that's one of the great benefits of online education is that you can get diverse perspectives. You can learn from other people in different parts of the world without necessarily having to go there. Uh, So we've been back on the road, as I mentioned, back in the air. And so uh, this year we taught 18 professional development courses as the Horizon staff. Uh, That was a significant endeavor. We teach about teaching. We teach about technology. Uh, We don't do a lot of teaching about theology, uh, but we do some of that as well. Uh, This year we went to seven theological education conferences. Uh, The one most significant one that we were involved in was mentioned earlier. Uh, by the International Council for Evangelical Theological Education. Uh, this organization represents Bible colleges and seminaries around the world, uh, probably about 100,000 students altogether a 1,000 seminaries. And uh, so in that gathering, uh, we worked together to talk about how we could bridge some of the, some of the gaps that exist between the various institutions and how uh, we could work better together and strengthen one another. Uh, that was a really significant uh, investment of our time, and really, we really enjoyed the the opportunity to participate in that kind of broad of a scope, uh, and it was really a great experience. And a side light was I got to go to Ephesus and uh, to Laodicea and uh, experience those uh, ruins again. Uh, really highly recommend if you ever have the opportunity to travel in that direction. Uh, last year, we also logged over 800 hours of training and consultation, uh, um, we, we work with a number of partners, and uh, we have opportunity to consult with them about what they're doing and how they can uh, improve what they're doing, ideas that they have about reaching out with their training, and we consult with them and help them with that. As I mentioned, we have 41 partners. You'll see them uh, located on the screen. Last year, we added one. This year, we've actually already added six at our uh, annual board meeting in February. They approved six new partners. Uh, but rather than talking about the 41, I'd rather like to talk for a few moments about three that are on the next slide, the three that are located in Ukraine. And again, if you're following the news, that one you definitely know about, uh, the war going on there for the last year. What's been most remarkable about that is the three partners that we have that are operating, no, sorry, that are in Ukraine, um, all of them have continued operations this last year, In fact, really in a surprising way, because when we did the statistics for the last year where our users had come from, uh, we had over 300 users on our learning management system who had their profile tagged as Ukraine. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were all accessing from Ukraine. Some of them may have fled to other parts of the world, uh, but they uh, all had a connection to one of our Ukrainian partners, so 300 students who are being trained in some way, uh, in some manner, uh, again, we don't track all the statistics at a granular level about you know which course they were taking and so on and so forth, but really amazing to see how our partners have continued to engage. In fact, so much so, uh, the stories are really amazing. We had been developing our courses in Russian uh, because that's what we were told that um, was appropriate in Ukraine uh, until last February uh, January when the Russians invaded, and then our partner said, no, we don't want any more courses in Russian. Uh, we want them translated in Ukraine. And over the last three years, they de- they've developed three of our courses, let alone their own courses, uh, into Ukrainian, uh, often hearing stories about our translator who would go into a warming tent Uh, where they had electricity and internet access, download some files, and then go back to her bombed-out apartment and translate the files offline and then bring them back to the warming tent and upload them. It was just really a humbling experience as we heard these stories come about how God was um, continuing to work, how how these people were continuing to work uh, in the midst of some very difficult uh, circumstances And so that's my brief update on the work of Horizon. I want to take a moment now and pray for Ukraine and for our partners there, if you would join with me. God, I thank you for the work that Horizon has been doing over this last year. We thank you more especially for the partners in uh, Ukraine that we have. We thank you for their work and their students that they've been reaching out to. We know there are many incredible opportunities for ministry. There is much hardship, there is much pain, there is much much death and destruction, and yet, God, you continue to work there. You continue to raise up your church and to raise up believers who are willing and uh, able to, take, uh, to to sacrifice their time and effort uh, so that the gospel would continue to be proclaimed and that men and women would be, continue to be trained for gospel ministry there. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to work in their midst, that you would give them comfort, that you would give them peace, And God, we pray that the war would cease and that uh, things would be able to return uh, to a more um, peaceful way of living for these uh, believers there, that their suffering would uh, come to an end and that you would be honored and glorified in what they do. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the praise, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. If you've been working at all, you have probably encountered the struggles of working with people. <laughs> now, I work in a Christian organization, so I need to be a little bit careful about what I say, partly because some of my colleagues may actually wind up listening uh, to this, but also because, honestly, I have it pretty good. Uh, I, like I said, I, I work with Uh, People who are dedicated to Christ, they are dedicated to His mission in the world, and we generally work really well together. Except you know, perhaps, that one of the statistics about missionaries are that the experts who analyze these things reveal that the number one cause of missionary attrition is friction with fellow missionaries number one reason that missionaries leave the field that they're serving in is because of the challenges that they face with other missionaries. That's a little bit concerning, I think, for all of you. If if people who are dedicated to the cause of Christ feel called to ministry, have a hard time getting along, but it does happen. And... You know, again, I have it pretty good. I I have watched a number of years ago uh, the security cam footage of one coworker uh, lobbing paper clips over a divider at another coworker, and seeing that other coworker climb over the cubicles and get to to get to the other coworker and to start pummeling him, and it was it was it was kind of funny to watch, but um, I'm sure it was not that funny to experience. So, working remotely as I do, Horizon is based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I have my own office. I, uh, the church that we attend in London, Compass Community Church, has graciously graciously provided me with office space. So I don't have anybody lobbing um, paper clips over the uh, divider at me, but it, it is still a struggle at times. I'm sure all of you have experienced those annoying co-workers at times. I remember when I was a Bible college student, I spent uh, three summers working at Beatrice Dairy making ice cream. Uh, In two of the summers, I worked in the mix department, and we were responsible for putting together the cream and the sugar and the whey powder and the cocoa powder and all those kind of things uh, to make up a batch of ice cream mix that would then go down to the production line. So we'd take these... Some of it was all liquid, as you would imagine, with the milk and the cream. But uh, we had bags of powder that we had to dump into this big industrial blender uh, to make this batch of ice cream mix. And I I quickly began to realize, as the summer student that I was being taken advantage of, that as we were getting to the end of the mix, uh, one coworker after the other would start saying that they needed to go for a breath of fresh air. And that I would just finish up the last you know, half a dozen 50-pound bags. I didn't mind that much. I got a pretty good workout lifting all those bags up into the industrial blender. Uh, but it always puzzled me what they said, or what they meant when they said they were going for a breath of fresh air, until uh, one time when I went looking for them, and I found them standing outside with a stick in their mouth. And uh, their breath of fresh air wasn't all that fresh, and suddenly it didn't really seem that appealing to me that I would go out and have a breath of fresh air and get a lung full of nicotine uh, instead. But it, w- it was kind of one of those annoying circumstances that I experienced. And perhaps you've experienced something similar, uh, because problems with coworkers are not something that's new. The text that we're going to be looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, is a text where problems between coworkers and coworkers' followers had come up and was a great source of division in the Corinthian church. So I'd invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we'll look at a a case of really significant problems in the early church, one of the early churches the church of Corinth, and we'll see what uh, Paul wrote to that church and uh, the struggles that were not being had between the co-workers, but were being had between the followers of the co-workers, and uh, so the converts of the missionaries, and so we're looking this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-9, through 9, and I'll read it uh, this morning, and uh, I'll be reading uh, this morning Uh, from the Christian Standard Bible uh, to start. And so here, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians says, "'For my part, brothers and sisters, "'I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, "'but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. "'I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, "'since you were not yet ready for it. "'In fact, you were still not ready, "'because you are still worldly. "'For since there is envy and strife among you, Are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth." Now he who plants and the one who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. We're going to be focusing on that last verse this morning, verse number nine. We'll be making reference to some of the other verses, and I do have a bit of a confession to make this morning, and that is that I had told Jessica that I was going to be preaching from the NIV this morning and then I realized that I didn't have a current version of the NIV. I have one on my phone, I could have read from that, but I, I like reading from my, my Bible. But I, I want to reread that last verse for you from the NIV, because I think the NIV translators got it better. And in fact, it's one of the nice things when a, a translator gets it right, in my estimation, because that makes preaching the text that much easier because I don't have to spend as much time kind of explaining why I think the translators got it wrong. So listen to what the translators of the NIV said in verse number nine. They said, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Now at first glance you may not catch the difference but I will explain it as we go along. Now, I should say that you'll notice as we're looking at this text that one of the major metaphors that occurs in this text is the metaphor of farming. You see that Paul planted the seed and Apollos watered it. Now, I'm guessing that perhaps in a congregation like this, we have some farmers, or perhaps we have at least some gardeners that are really pretty good. And I have to confess that I'm not really that good of a gardener, uh, I'm not a farmer. Uh, I am the son of a former farmer. Uh, I worked on farms growing up, and I did learn some things, though, and I think those things kind of serve as the primary lesson that I'd like to leave with you this morning. As I worked several summers on the farm, uh, one of the lessons I learned that in harvesting, that there is a lot of people engaged in the process, that it's not a simple one-person job. I worked in hay and uh, we did the little square, ba- little square bales. I know things have changed a lot in farming that now maybe one guy can do it all sitting on his tracker, tractor with big roll bales. We did the little bales where, you know, you needed a guy to drive the tractor, you needed a guy to stack the bales on the wagon, you needed a guy to unload the bales, you needed a couple guys in the hay mound to put them away. It was a lot of work. And so I learned that we need people who are going to work together for the harvest. And so I believe that's what the message of Paul is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, particularly in verse 9, when he talks about us as being fellow workers or co-workers in God's service. And so Paul's point is that the people that he's talking about He and Apollos and Peter, perhaps, were working under God's leadership as jointly commissioned by God to, I'll switch metaphors for a moment because Paul does it, to build God's church. So therefore, there should be no rivalry. There should be no sense of contention between those who are striving to build God's church because they were working together for the harvest. And this is the nature of missions, and I would suggest to you that this is should be the nature of ministry in general that until the whole world hears, we must work together for the harvest. And so the first point this morning is that as co-workers in God's service, we must work. Now for some people, work is a four-letter word. Well, okay, for everyone, work is a four-letter word, but a four-letter word in the bad sense. In fact, sometimes even Christians find themselves succumbing to this kind of approach to work. A few years ago, I had an acquaintance from church who had been looking for a job for a number of years and he had uh, had asked us to pray about it and we had and he got a job and it was really an amazing thing to see his excitement about this new position that he got. But as I tracked him on Facebook, as you know we can do, um, I noticed this kind of decline in his posts about work. They were no longer so excited And so by the end of October, he had gotten the job in September. By the end of October, he was like saying, here we go again. You know, do I have to go to work today? It really is not a whole lot of fun. And, you know, there is a certain amount of drudgery uh, to our employment, to our work that we do. Sometimes our attitude and our approach suffers, even as Christians. But work we need to remember is a creation mandate. Adam and Eve were instructed that they were going to care for the garden. And so we, as people, are expected to be engaged in labor. Now, to be sure, sin spoiled working conditions and made it more difficult and less rewarding to work. And yet, Paul gave warnings about idleness. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he said that if a man will not work, he should not eat. And uh, I don't know what that does for a potluck uh, later on, but uh, hopefully you've all been doing some work. And I heard that even if you didn't bring anything, even if you didn't do any work, there's gonna be food there. That's my experience with potlucks at Creswick. I-, I think you guys do an amazing job, just gotta say, a potlucks. And so I'm really looking forward to this. But Paul wasn't really talking about a physical, uh, about physical, sorry, even though uh, our text this morning is not, specifically referring to physical work, it's referring to spiritual work, and, but I think the principle still um, is there, that we are not saved to sit, that we are not saved to soak and to sour, that we are uh, saved to serve, that we are saved that we would engage in uh, bearing witness to what Christ has done in our life, to spreading the gospel, to doing good works, to demonstrating God's grace in our lives. Someone has said that spiritual labor is a sign of spiritual life, if you want to demonstrate that you are alive spiritually, that you should be engaged in spiritual labor. You noticed in the passage that was read for us this morning from Philippians chapter 4, uh, from Philippians chapter 2, sorry, that Paul calls Epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker. And to give us a sense of what kind of worker he was, he refers to him as his fellow soldier. It implies that Epaphroditus was accepting the work, that he was accepting the toil and the struggle and the renunciation that a soldier engages in. Later on in Philippians, Paul talks about Yodia and Syntyche and Clement, the rest of the fellow workers. And Paul refers to them as comrades in the struggle for the gospel. It makes me wonder, how are we struggling for the gospel? How are we working for the gospel as Christians, uh, and particularly as a, mini- uh, as a missionary, I'm called to engage with the work of Christ until the whole world hears we need to labor, we need to take risks, we need to proclaim the gospel. Now I would say there's a brief caution here, that, and that is that Christian workers may come and go, but God's work continues. Uh, it, it's been amazing to see over the lifespan of my, my engagement with Crestwick to see how Christian workers come and go and yet the work continues because God is at work ultimately. And so even in this text, in um, verse number six, again, I think the NIV gets this right because it translated as, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. That's what's happening in your life. That's what's happening in the lives of those around you. God is making the seed grow. This is the parable that Jesus told in Mark chapter four when he said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. That, that one is really amazing to me because I think a lot of times it's up to me. But that passage says it's not really up to me. It says it's really up to God. It doesn't mean I should slack off and I should do nothing, but it means that ultimately the results are in God's hands, not in mine. So the first principle is that as co-workers in God's service, we must work. The second is that as co-workers in God's service, we must work together. Now, we is an interesting word. It's only two letters. But what does someone mean when they say we? What does Paul mean when he says we in this passage? I think what Paul is saying here is not something that is universal, that is to say that all the people he was talking to were God's fellow workers. I think what he's referring to here when he says we is that it was Paul and Apollos and perhaps Peter and maybe some of the other Corinthian leaders. In the context, I think we can see that, if we uh, let your eyes fall down in 1 Corinthians chapter three to verses 12 through 15. Because I think there we get a better sense of what Paul is talking about with the we. In fact, I think what Paul is describing when he talks about uh, we are fellow workers in God's service is he's talking about the quality of workmanship done by those contributing to the building of the church in Corinthians. He says, "Let let each one take care how he builds, verse number 10, and talking about both Paul and Apollos, Peter, and the local church leadership. Pastor RJ, I think this is sobering. Uh, other leaders in the church, I think this is sobering. This is a call when we read about the, what has been referred to as the beam of seat judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that, that we are going to be called to account for the ways in which we contribute to, or don't contribute to, uh, the building of God's church, And so I think it's something that we need to take seriously. But I think also, to kind of back off my, this isn't universal, this is somewhat exclusive, there is a sense in which it is broader than just Paul and Apollos and Peter, for that matter. Because even though the designation here in this text I don't think is universal, if you read through Paul's epistles and you read the number of people he talks about as being his co-workers... There are over a hundred different people that he names as co workers or some kind of variation of that theme. And everywhere it seems that Paul went, he had a co worker. There was somebody beside him who was laboring with him in the task of evangelism. We referred a few moments ago to the text in Philippians. He refers to Epaphroditus as one of his co-workers. He refers to Yodia and Syntyche and to Clement as his co-workers. There were a lot of people who were engaged in this task. And so we have a part to play. We can be engaged in this task. We are called to work. We are called to work together. Now, working together implies that there should not be a sense of rivalry or competition or of ranking. The emphasis lies or should lie on cooperation and on solidarity and on unity rather than on competition and competitiveness. Now, to be clear, there's not a sense in this text or in most of Paul's thinking that there is a sense of uniformity that should be there. There is diversity. There is ability to exercise your gifts and to work in different parts of the harvest field. But the unity is in working under Christ, under God. These workers are not rivals. They don't see themselves as rivals. That's, in fact, the real point of the whole text is that they are not rivals, and so the church shouldn't be split into factions because they didn't think of themselves as competing, so the church shouldn't think of them as competing. They saw their work as united, and they were trying to have a united effort under a sovereign God. The whole world will hear when we actually get this message, when we learn to live the message that we have been taught, that, we, that God is a God of reconciliation, and that we are called to be reconciled to Him, but also we are called to be reconciled to one another. And that is a, a, a really difficult thing for us to put into practice at times, And yet, God has called us to do it. I read a number of years ago a book called In the Land of Believers. Uh, In it, there was a secular Jew. She went undercover at uh, what was then Jerry Falwell's Liberty, uh, not Liberty, Thomas Road Baptist Church, the, the church associated with Liberty University. She was going in expecting to come out with a hard hitting expose of just how bad this church was. And instead, she came away impressed by the way that that. The people in that congregation loved one another, cared for one another, and how they were living out some of the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were working together for the kingdom of God. So, the third principle in the text uh, this morning is that as co workers in God's service, we must work together. For God. This is where we come back to that. You know, I'm reading from the NIV, no, I'm reading from the CSB, that idea of we are God's fellow workers. No, we are not God's fellow workers in a sense, we are fellow workers in God's service. So you see, there's a bit of a difference there. Most modern translations, I don't know what you have in front of you, are a little bit unclear about what the relationship is between God and the fellow workers. That's what I like about the NIV because I think it gets it right. It says that we are fellow workers in God's service. I interpret this verse like it does as kind of a possessive sense that Paul and Apollos are fellow workers who belong to God, that they are only servants. That's what it says in verse 5. They're serving their Lord and Master. They work for God since he has assigned them the tasks that they are to do. Ultimately, it was God who was responsible for the, the success of their work. In the big scheme of things, it was God who was really something, not Paul and Apollos. They worked for God's purpose on his field, and they toil for him in hard labor. Uh, and it is to God, Paul says in verse number 8, that they owe their primary accountability who, for who is going to pay their wages, it's not the Corinthians who are going to pay their wages. It is God who is going to pay their wages. Notice the, uh, the rest of verse number nine, where Paul says that it is the Corinthians are the field, the building, you can choose your metaphor, that belongs to God. So I think in the first part of the verse, it's also the fellow workers that belong to God, that they're in service to God. And that's what I think we are. We, it's not like we are equals with God in doing his work. Yes, we, we have a task, we have a dignified task, in fact. In other parts of Paul, we read that we are his ambassadors. That's really, I think, quite an amazing idea of the dignity of the work that we have for Christ, is that we are working on his behalf, that we are his delegates, his appointees. But God and man are never equal in the proclamation of the gospel. We as Christians are merely instruments in God's hands and laboring on his behalf. We work for him, next to him. Paul is described as God's chosen instrument in Acts chapter nine, verse 15. As I already mentioned, I don't think this demeans our role, Uh, but it uh, makes us understand that we are working in God's service. Oswald Chambers said, Beware of any work for God which enables you to evade concentration on Him. A great many Christian workers worship their work. The one concern of a worker should be concentration on God. And so I think the point is that whether a Christian worker is anything or something, as Paul says in the text, depends on whether they play the role assigned to them by God as his agent to facilitate God's work, not their own particular projects. So we are called to work on God's mission, not on our own. And what is the mission of God? It's giving him glory and bringing glory and honor to him and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the whole world will hear when we continue to focus our attention on God and his glory I noticed as I was preparing to come, I, I was perusing the church website. I noticed that Pastor R.J. has been preaching a series from Ezra and Nehemiah about rebuilding community. And I, I thought this text really fit in well with that without actually being part of the series, because really, it, it says that you, we, must work together for the harvest. that that is what you are called to do here as a body of believers. You are called to work together to build that community, whether it be from understanding it from Ezra or whether it be from understanding it from Paul. Now, in Ezra, I shouldn't preach your sermon for you, uh, but you know the focus is on building the wall, doing kind of the physical labor. Uh, Here we find some of that metaphor as well. We find the laborers in the field. We find the building. And I think that building metaphor is really kind of interesting, and that's where we're going to close because you notice Paul doesn't End on the farming metaphor, he ends on the building metaphor. It is we are God's building. What kind of building are we? I think we're a temple. I don't think Paul tells us we are a temple. And I think that's really the amazing part about working for God and his glory. And really the important part of missions, and I close with a John Piper quote that perhaps you've seen before and uh, I think I have just part of it on the screen, so I'll read a little bit more of it for you. It says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Uh, worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God and preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish mission begins and ends with worship. And so we return now to sing some more praise to God as we worship him with our voices. And so I'd ask the worship team to come back and lead us in our closing song.